Well, thank you very much, Father, once again, and thank you all for coming out and being patient and enduring. I, I think it's the first time I've ever given four uh, lectures to the same crowd, and I'm really impressed that you're still here after the first three. Uh, this is going to be the most uh, maybe uh, provocative and interesting of the four, perhaps, if you thought, well, is that possible With, after the last one we did on ecumenism? But it is possible. I'm not actually going to be able to present the entire survival course, which went on for many, many days and is a large book. Uh, but what we're going to do is introduce it. And uh, how many have read the survival course? Can we see a show of hands? All right. And how many uh, have heard? Uh, how many have not heard uh, of the survival course? Can you raise your hands? Who've not heard of the survival course? Have you heard of the survival course back there? You've heard of it? Have you read it? You've not read it. How about you guys? Have you read it? Back in the... You read it? Yes. Okay, so I'm sorry that if you've read it, you're not going to be very surprised by much of what I'm going to present, except maybe a few comments on my own. But uh, for all of you who've not read it, not heard of it or not read it, hopefully this will spur you on to go and pick it up and read it, because... It is extremely important for our salvation. Otherwise, why would we be sitting here talking about it? And why would Father Seraphim have devoted many days and many years, actually, over a number of years, uh, Father Seraphim was presenting the survival course to the Father. So let's start the first slide. Remembering what we do here, at least at the Orthodox ethos, is always trying to follow the Holy Fathers. Because without doing that, we're not going to understand and grasp the truth or theology. So Father Seraphim talks in the very beginning uh, and is very characteristic, go ahead, uh, about the survival course. And he says the following, which is, I think, uh, one of the keys to understanding the book and uh, also uh, the history of the last thousand years. At the dawn of modern history, the 13th century, all the seeds of the modern mentality are present and the modern history follows logically from these seeds. Essentially, this mentality is the search for a new Christianity, which is better than orthodoxy, better than the Christianity of the Holy Fathers. This is really what he comes back to again and again and again throughout the lectures. This is one of his uh, themes and what he repeats and he drives home for us to understand our day-to-day. -day. Why is it so it's very important for us to understand where we are in the whole process of the mystery of iniquity that St. Paul talks about, the whole process of the apostasy? Uh, many people during COVID uh, were kind of fooled, I think, in, in, into believing a lot of the propaganda that came down to us, a lot of the messaging, the fear-mongering, all that we went through. And... Other people were were kind of alert and they were saying this seems strange and then they eventually you know rejected a lot of the things they were told. But they the um, most you could even the ones who are fighting against even to this day the ones who are fighting against the you know the the zeitgeist the spirit of the age the ones who are in the in the world outside of the church who are who are struggling against globalization or or the uh, uh, the new. Uh, transhumanism, for instance, is coming on the the uh, uh, meta anthropos, the me the, the meta human that's that they're trying to create. All these various isms of our day. There are people who are instinctively all over the world who are who are re reacting and rejecting that. But what you recognize and what you see in the, in a lot of these movements, political, social, cultural, is that they lack what Father Seraphim and what the Church gives us, and that is a perspective on where we are in the whole process. There's no understanding of the Alpha and the Omega outside of the church. There's no understanding of where we came from, the origins of man, and the end of history, and the return of Christ, the second coming, and the ascent of Antichrist. And as long as you don't have the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, you can't figure out what's going on in between, right? So that's why many church fathers focus on creation, 
origins, why evolution is such an important topic and why Father Seraphim devoted a whole ta- talk to it. Because if we uh, misunderstand and don't, and don't follow Holy Fathers with, about our origins, about man's creation, his fall, and all of the, the, that process, we'll, not, we'll never understand our condition. We'll never understand why we need a Redeemer. We won't understand what salvation is. And likewise, if we don't understand where history is leading us, where we're going to end up in history, that there will be an ascent of Antichrist, there will be a second coming, and the signs are given to us, the Lord himself talks about it, the fathers talk about it, the Revelation talks about it, the book of Revelation. All of that is extremely important. Why would the Lord give us the book of Revelation? Why would he talk about it in the Gospels if it wasn't very important for our own salvation? Everything he did, I want to repeat this many times, everything he said, everything he did, was for one purpose, that you and I come into communion with him. In other words, our salvation. So when it says in Scripture that here's a, here are the signs of the end, he says, and be on guard and all the things that, that the Lord says, that's not optional. You know, there are people who, who I'm, we're presenting, uh, Orthodox Ethos is presenting for the last year and a half, the book of Revelation, and the, uh, based on the lectures of uh, Elder Athanasius Metelineos. And there are some people who say, Father, you know, don't listen to that because we don't we don't talk about the Book of Revelation in the Orthodox Church. It's bizarre. Where do they get these ideas? We don't talk about the one of the books of the Bible in the Orthodox Church, or we, we you know, this is apocalyptic uh, and this is uh, dangerous. But the saints talk about it. We have commentary by, of the saints on the Book of Revelation. We have Elder Athanasius. We have Father Seraphim, uh, Bishop Averki, and and many many more. Uh, so it's it's extremely important. So Father Seraphim has done an amazing service to us. And I think it's probably the most important book that will ever be produced uh, by St. Herman Press. Hopefully it'll come out soon. We've been waiting for it for 25 years. Uh, I remember talking to Father Damascene in 1996 about the book coming out, and we're still waiting for it. But I'm sure it's a very difficult book to produce. There's a lot of footnotes and lots of material that he has to go through. But the service is really exceptional. And I, I, I would say every Orthodox Christian needs to read the survival course uh, going forward. Hang on. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. All right. So in 1975, in the summer of 75, on the grounds of a little skeet in the mountains of Northern California, Father Seraphim began with four students. Four. So anybody who says, well, I'm in a small mission and I only have four students show up on Wednesday. Remember, Father Seraphim had four students at his New Valam Theological Academy, and then he repeated that every year until his repose, and he had a lot more students going forward. But he called it a survival course. A survival course. Actually, we're not there yet, so don't, don't pay any attention to the screen. Uh, I don't want to say, why did he call it a survival course? Very important for us. Because he believed that in order for people to survive spiritually in these days, they had to understand the apostasy. They had to understand the modern age. He said, for instance, this course will concentrate on the most important movements and writers that help shape the mentality of the modern day. Uh, And, you know, like every good doctor, they focus on the disease. They study the disease, how it works, right? So that they can understand how to keep the body healthy and, and, and to fight the disease. And a good doctor is going to tell you what's wrong. He's going to tell you how to fix it. He's going to tell you the nature of the disease and how it comes about and how one is freed from it. It's the same here. Uh, if you don't have this understanding this of the mentality of our day, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, you're in grave danger, he says. Because the movements of thought around... Uh, w- because the movement of thoughts around one, which have been formed over the last eight or nine centuries, affect one directly. And one cannot know how to answer them without knowing what is right, what is wrong, what is of God, what is not. So this discernment, this process of gaining discernment, this is actually the big part of the spiritual life. It's actually the greatest of all virtues is discernment. And the fathers in the desert would speak about that as the greatest, the pinnacle of all the virtues, because that's really what it means to be made uh, holy and to become an Orthodox Christian in, in the full sense of the word, it is to gain discernment of the spirits, what is of God and what is not of God. So Father Seraphim is serving the church in that very important way. Uh, he says, you know, you could be uh, there. Are, there are under Orthodox isolationist fundamental. He calls a fundamentalist kind of character, kind of making fun of this idea that they, they they can say, well, who cares about all the world? Just reject the world and. And I'm going to stay here in my Orthodox, you know, little world. 
It's, it's not realistic and it's not pastoral and it's actually it's very naive. You have to understand and discern what's going on around you. Otherwise, you'll be infected without even knowing it. Father Zerifim says somewhere else, you, the first step in overcoming the temptation and the disease of the age that we live in is admitting that you're breathing in the pestilence of the age. Right? If you don't even admit that, if you're surrounded by this pestilence and you say, no, 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 I'm fine, you're going to be overcome by it, right? Just think of it. That, that's a great image that he has for us. So the first thing is to say, yes, we're surrounded by this diseased and distorted understanding of man, of salvation, of Christ, and we have to divest them, you know, get, get rid of all that and be free of it. So he's standing there in 75 and he's got four students in front of him and he it's all recorded and then a few years later God takes him and he reposes and one might think well that's the end of the story but in fact that lecture series has been recorded transcribed is now on the internet and people have like father has presented on it I presented on it and many other people have presented on it because it is so extraordinarily per, uh, perceptive and and informative and helpful to free us and understand the whole process of the apostasy. He says at the beginning of his course, a great danger of our times and the movement of those uh, and the movement of those who come to orthodoxy is one one might call in the very down-to-earth language the phenomenon of spiritual baboons. Spiritual baboons. In other words, people who are hourly orthodox and even pride themselves on being very correct in their orthodoxy, but down deep are not really changed. They're not healed. They do not grow in orthodoxy and they remain very much a part of the modern world which is rooted in anti-Christianity. It's not just indifferent, it's not just not Christianity, it's anti-Christianity. You know, there really is only Christianity and anti-Christianity at the end of the day, right? Because there's only Christ and those who are loving and following and seeking him and those who are not, those who are indifferent or against Christ. Christ said it himself, the prophecy of Simeon when he went into the temple. For the rise and fall of many, he is a sign to be spoken against. He will reveal the hearts of many. That's the nature of truth. It comes and its very presence divides. Not because Christ divides, but because those who accept him and those who reject him cannot be in communion. And so there is anti-Christianity in the world today, not just indifferent to Christianity. <clears throat> and he says these spiritual baboons, why are they, why are they, what's their problem? He says they don't grow, they do not see how much in conflict is true orthodoxy with the world in which they still have not left behind. They serve two masters, essentially. As opposed to this, go ahead, a conversion to orthodoxy, true orthodoxy, must be total. It must affect everyone, everything one does. The way one looks at things and the way one values everything in one's life. Otherwise, orthodoxy becomes just one more sect. Differing only outwardly from other sects such as Mormonism. Oh, it's very exotic. You orthodox are very exotic. You wear cassocks and you have beards and the Mormons are very exotic as well. And so from a very superficial standpoint, that's how the world might see us. If one looks at all the sects, they're all on the same level. They all are as if one-dimensional and have nothing deeper. They differ only insofar as they have different dogmas. If orthodoxy is simply one of these, then it is not the truth, but simply one sect of many. But orthodoxy is precisely truth, which should totally change one's life. And Therefore, in order to have this total orthodox worldview, one must be constantly educating oneself, going deeper, going broader. That's one of the reasons why I, we're, we're, I'm producing a book here, come out six months hopefully, and it's called Going Deeper. That's the title of the book. In setting this example of cultivating, cultivating an orthodox, a total orthodox worldview, and imparting an orthodox understanding of modern Western and now global civilization, right? Western civilization is global. We learned about that earlier. How did Western civilization become global? Colonialism and the Protestant missionaries at the four corners of the earth and technology today. Father Seraphim relied on the work done by predecessors. He was relying on those who came before him, and one of them was Ivan Kirievsky. And based on, on Kirievsky, Father Seraphim <clears throat> traced the apostasy with its origins in the schism of Rome, 
to the special trait of the Western man in mind, the conviction that outward rationalism outweighs the inward essence of things. This is one of the keys. That outward rationalism, this is the, the whole world is based on scientism, scientific, you know. You must trust the science, we heard for the last five years, and the science changes, and now actually the science has proved, science has proved that it, we didn't have to trust that science, now we have different science we have to trust. That the outward order of his logical concepts was for him more real than reality itself. It's more real, the concepts that we create, than the experiences that we have. That's how people live. They trust more their mind than their own, their own immediate experience. And that the inward balance of his existence was known by him only in the balance of his rational conceptions or outward formal activity. While still within the community of the church, this cultural trait of the Roman mind, the logical uh, Western mind, it was somewhat put on, uh, it, was re- it was restricted, so to speak. But when the Pope embraced and it was taken over by the Franks in the 11th century and accepted the Filioque and walked away from the Eighth Ecumenical Council. Then that whole development immediately took off in the West and there was no checks and balances anymore. You know, the burden that we all share, we all share, you and I and all of us here in America, we carry the burden of the whole church. And all the Christians in Greece and Amanathos carry the burden of the Christians in America. We're all one body. So when one of us are broken off, the devil isolates one part. The traits that are not given to that balance, they, they are not checked any longer. They're no, no longer controlled. And that's what happened in the West. <clears throat> Once having been taken away from orthodoxy and free to develop according to its own principles, and free to develop according to its own principles, it became the source of a whole new philosophy which had the power to overwhelm the whole world finally in our own time. So if you want to understand the day we live in, the days we live in, you have to go back a thousand years to when Rome departed from the church. In other words, not Roman civilization, the church, which was really the Frankish church. Rome had been taken over by the Franks for all intents and purposes. They had had lost their communion with the rest of the Roman Empire, the Romanity in the East, and the center of it, which was Constantinople, and now they uh, they had basically fallen away from orthodoxy and were, and were at, the, at the whim of the demons and the passions of those in the West. The history of the West, go ahead, the history of the West is a logical and coherent whole, and the views governing mankind today when the West dominates the world are a direct result of the 12th and 13th century Western European views, all of which can only be understood by an orthodox worldview. The key to understanding the modern world is to understand what happened in the West during the Middle Ages, which is a purely Western phenomenon. This is really interesting. Only in the West. Nowhere in the world do we have this phenomenon of Middle Ages. All other civilizations, all other civilizations, Russian, Greek, Chinese, Indian, everything, have only two divisions of history, ancient and modern, when the fabric of traditional civilization begins to unravel and dissolve under Western influence. So in, in, in Greece, for instance, which is considered a part of the West, but it really was in between the East and the West, and Orthodoxy was the core in Asia Minor, for instance, there was an abrupt change in the 20th century in the villages. I mean, I, I was a priest in a village for what was it, 12 years, 13 years? I talked to the old-timers who were born in the 30s, and we talked about the village back in the 40s and 50s and 60s, and then things were essentially dissolved when they all left for the city and left for Australia and left for America. And Western, in the 20th century, tons of people left Greece, but also there was a concerted effort for the last 200 years to westernize Greece, to have as the uh, uh, examples, not the fathers of the church, not the Byzantine period. By the way, there's no such thing as a Byzantine. Never existed, but now we call it the Byzantine Empire. It's the Roman Empire in the East. And not to look to the, the Roman Empire, but to look to the ancient Greece and to totally remake the modern uh, Greek slash Hellene into a, uh, a, a Western man. And so it was had to be done in a short period of time after the revolution. They have to quickly make that person to conform to the previous four, five, six, seven, eight hundred years that had gone slowly, had developed slowly in the West. Only in the West is slow disintegration. 
through the various stages. But in other parts of the world, it was very abrupt. 1917 revolution in Russia, and communism comes and all the rest. Now, of course, there's a prehistory of that, but there's a reason why there had to be bloodshed throughout Russia. And there had to be churches destroyed and, and people slaughtered. There had to be a quick and abrupt uh, uh, conforming of the Russian people to the Western. Communism is a Western philosophy, not an Orthodox Christian Eastern philosophy. It was imposed on Russia and the whole East and to bring them up to, sorry, so Father Zephyr Rose, for instance, says communism, capitalism, two sides of the same coin, right? They're both atheists, they're both godless, and they both have the aim of preparing the whole world for the Antichrist. So this is the very interesting and very important point here. Only the West has the Middle Ages, and only this, this period of intubation where the modern mentality is cooked and, and, and prepared, and people are slowly divested of Christianity. The Enlightenment is a total anti-Christian period. It's not nothing Christian about it. That's why America is not a Christian country and never has been, never been a Christian country. This is a total delusion on the part of many Protestants. It was founded on Enlightenment principles. John Locke was not a Christian in, in any sense. He was not a believer, a, a member of the, of the church. He was not a, a traditional Christian at all. He was an Enlightenment and deists, many of the, deists, the founding fathers were deists. The point here is that that happened over a long period of time in the West, but very abrupt everywhere else. Everywhere else in the world we see antiquity overwhelmed by modernism. Whereas in the West we see how modernism itself developed out of Western Christianity, the solution of Western Christianity. The root then of the revolution of the modern man is traced back to an event in church history, the schism of Rome. <clears throat> Many people in analyzing the world today go back to the Enlightenment period, to the French Revolution, and beyond that to the rise of science, the Renaissance, the Reformation, which seem, seems to be the beginning of modern times. Many people say the Enlightenment is the beginning of modern times. Not true. It's one more stage on the whole process. People who think deeply will go back perhaps further to the end of the Middle Ages where they will find many currents, anomalies, and so forth, moving away from the Catholic synthesis, the scholastic synthesis, of the 13th century, but we must go back further than that. The roots of the whole modern history, as we said, as we've said, is in the schism of the Church of Rome. And I would say, I would correct Father Seraphim slightly, just because I think it's important for us to uh, to refine even further our thinking. The Church of Rome, properly speaking, was Orthodox, and you can see that in the history of the struggle after the Eighth Ecumenical Council in 879 and. In Constantinople, there was a great and, and holy ecumenical council, the Eighth Ecumenical Council. By the way, God willing, if God blesses it, we're going to have a conference all about the Eighth Ecumenical Council in the near future, maybe this fall, maybe later. And very important for us to understand, they buried it in history. How many of you heard that there's an Eighth Ecumenical Council? Look at that, not one hand goes up. One person, two people. Most people say we have seven ecumenical councils. It's not true. That's a Western or scholastic or something. I don't know where it came from. There's so many witnesses in the second millennium that the Holy Orthodox Church and the Orthodox Fathers in the last thousand years spoke repeatedly about the Eighth Ecumenical Council under St. Photius in 879, which condemned and rejected the Filioque. And because they walked away from that, they walked away from Romanity, and they listened to the Franks, they fell away from, from Romanity and the Roman uh, Orthodoxy. So... I prefer to talk about the Franks and the Latin or Papal Protestants and not the Roman Catholics because they're neither Roman nor Catholics. Just like there was never a Roman, uh, Holy Roman Empire, it was neither Holy nor Roman nor an empire historically. It, all of those are misnomers. There was never, there's never been a Roman Catholic Church because Roman, again, pertains to the civilization of Rome and that was mainly after the fourth century in Constantinople and has been maintained and continued in Constantinople to stay. The Turks and the Easterners refer to the Orthodox and all of those Orthodox in the East as Rum, Romans. When they conquered Constantinople, they said, we conquered the Romans. And then secondly, Catholicity only belongs to the church. There's nothing Catholic about Catholicism. Catholicism is a heresy and it's an ism, not Catholic. It's not whole. 
doesn't have the whole faith. So having said that, we will accept it as a, uh, a term that we have to use, but it's not really descriptive of the reality. So it's really interesting that we had to have essentially someone from the West who had become Orthodox to tell us about the history of the West. Up at this point, many Orthodox would see pieces and parts. We have Orthodox writers writing about the problems in, the, in Catholicism. But here, this is probably the first person, I think, I don't know of anyone else, who's done such an amazing analysis of the entire apostasy from the Latin Franks to the day. And we have to ask, what is the cause, or at least the main cause, of them falling away? There's historical reasons. There's the rejection of the Atheist Council. But essentially what happened was, this super-rationalism took over in the West, and it dominated the views of, of the church in the West. Logicalness became the first test of truth, and living sources of faith second. Under this influence, Western man loses a living relationship with, to truth, and Christianity is reduced to a system, like a philosophical system to a human level, which is the root of all the later errors in the West, which is an attempt to make, by human efforts, something better than Christianity. We're going to improve on Christianity. And there's a number of historical examples that follows there from sites to show again and again and again how Christians in the West were improving upon whatever had been given. I mean, this happens again and again. What is Protestantism? But we're going to break off and we're going to make it better than the previous version or attempt that had come before. The Roman Church writes Kitievsky, Ivan Kitievsky, philosopher of the 19th century, Father Seraphim used extensively. It fell away from the truth only because it wished to introduce into the faith new dogmas unknown to church tradition and begotten by the accidental conclusions of Western logic. That's the filioque it's talking about. From this, there developed scholastic philosophy within the framework of the faith, then a reformation of the faith, Protestant Reformation, and finally, philosophy outside the faith. So it's like an onion that you peel and then you get deeper and deeper, right? and then the thing's gone at the end of the day. The first rationalists were the scholastics. One might say that the 19th century Europe finished the cycle of its development, which had begun in the 9th. A Christian of the 4th or 5th century, this is according to Yves Congard. How many people know who Yves Congard is? Anybody? Somebody? Historically? Very, very important uh, 20th century Roman Catholic scholar. Uh, he's behind Vatican II. I, I examined him in my book, which you can purchase over there, about the Second Vatican Council. Very important. If you want to understand ecumenism and the ecclesiology that they're, gonna, they're proposing for us, you have to read the, the thesis because he's the mastermind, so to speak, or the father of this new ecclesiology. And he says something which is extremely important and revealing. This is a, a proponent of papal authority, right? This is somebody who is sympathetic to the East, but he speaks the truth about what happened in uh, the West in the 12th century, 11th and 12th century. He says, a Christian of the 4th or 5th century would have felt less bewildered by the forms of piety current in the 11th century. This is basically, uh, uh, I would have probably said the 10th century, but anyway, let's say the 11th century. In the forms, uh, uh, let's see, it occurred in the 11th century, then would his counterpart of the 11th century in the forms of the 12th century. So he's saying from the 11th to the 12th, you've got a huge chasm in experience and forms of worship and understanding. This is a Roman Catholic, so-called Roman Catholic, a Latin father of the Vatican Council, Second Vatican Council. And he says, massive change between the 11th and 12th century. I always wondered when I was doing research on this, so doesn't that kind of point to orthodoxy? <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you recognize that and yet not want to leave and become orthodox? I don't, I don't understand it. The great break occurred, he says, in the transition period from one to the other century. This is him talking. The change took place only in the West, only in the West, not only the orthodox, where sometime between the end of the 11th century and the end of the 12th century, everything was somehow transformed. It's a, it's a confession of the apostasy of, of the Latins. It's a confession of the loss of the grace of God. It's a confession, but he doesn't understand it. He doesn't understand the implications of what he's saying, apparently. This profound alteration of view did not take place in the East, where in some respects, Christian matters are still today what they were then and were in the West before the 11th century. I mean, it's just, it's just mind-boggling 
that he could say this and not understand the implications of what he's saying. It's obviously a, a witness against Catholicism and for orthodoxy. Father Seraphim points to several areas of transition. He says, we go from a predominantly essential and exemplarist outlook to a naturalistic one. From a synthetic perception to an inclination for analysis and questioning, which is the beginning of scholasticism. This is what's happening in the 12th and 13th century. And he says a new spirit, another, another area of change, a new spirit entered in. A new interest in the world, this world, not the next, but this world. And, and, and developing and perfecting the things of this world. Which is a not, not a Christian endeavor, right? Civilization comes from who? From, from Cain or Abel? Civilization, where does it come from? Cain. Was Cain blessed or not by God? No. Civilization, the Tower of Babel, the whole development of technology is not inspired by God. God has no need for this. He doesn't need a, a, this computer or any other technology to help bring us closer to himself. So all of this development is an extension of this analytical, rational uh, stance, this new spirit, this passion for analysis, the creation of new techniques of study, the superdependence on human reason, all of that we observe in the beginning of the 12th, 13th century, and then in scholasticism. So let's look at the method of reasoning that we see in Aquinas as an example of what happened in the West. From the way he reasons, you can see that this is very different from the spirit of the Holy Fathers. Father Seraphim speaking here. We do not go from one logical chain of reasoning. It is all logic. And he comes sometimes to ridiculous conclusions simply by following logic. This is a systemization of Christian teaching which actually subordinates Christian teaching to logic. This is one example, according to Father Seraphim, along with other examples, such as the proof of the existence of God by Anselm. Anselm wrote a whole book about proving the existence of God. And you see this followed many times over in the Protestant world. We have to prove to the rationalists the existence of God. I mean, the whole idea is absurd from an orthodox perspective. We have experience of God. And God is in our midst, and, and he, he's, he dwelled among us, and he, he left his church, and all this. We go around proving to people the existence of God. It's, it's bizarre. Of the attempt to make, by human effort, something better than Christianity. They didn't do that. Church fathers didn't go around trying to prove the existence of God. Of course, they, they talked about is the witness of God, in, of course, in nature and all the rest. But this is different. This idea, this theme, will remain, again, the central remain uh, essential in the remaining development of Western thought. <clears throat> Later on, their element of pagan legend enters in to the uh, hagiography of the Orthodox in the West, and we have the, the so-called golden legend that develops, and it's an embellishment of the lives of the saints. They take somebody like St. Christopher, and they, and they embellish his whole life and make it more interesting for people to read, and then they have uh, things like the Holy Grail, that are just mythology. And all this gets mixed in and confused in the West, and people start to see the lives of the saints as fanciful. And the miracles that are worked in the, in the lives of St. George or in the lives of St. Catherine, they begin to say, well, this is impossible, the rationally and logically analyzing the lives of the saints. Indeed, many of you probably do not know this. It's very sh uh, shocking, and I didn't know it until I started doing my research. Did you know that in... Right after the Second Vatican Council, the, the Vatican reclassified scores of lives of saints, suppressing the cult, that's how they express it, suppressing the cult, the, the veneration of these saints, and thus calling into question the legitimacy not only of the accounts of such well-known saints as St. Catherine or St. George or St. Christopher and others, but the very, even their very existence. They even call into question if they existed. This is where they ended up, from the 12th, to the 20th century, they started to call into question the very existence of the saints that the church has known and loved and praised to, and the miracles happen in the church to this day, and, and the witness of the saints is alive in the Orthodox Church, but they don't even exist in, possibly, among scholars in Catholicism. This is a confirmation of what Father Seraphim is talking about here. So, go ahead. What we see here now is something new comes in, in the 12th, 13th century. 
which is even greater and more decisive than the logicalness, the rationalism, is something which will do more to bring about the advent, advent of Antichrist than even scholasticism, according to Father Seraphim. This is the concept of sanctity, which becomes now different from the orthodox concepts of sanctity. A different idea of holiness, different idea of what it means to be a saint. This is very important, right? Because you're going to see, you're seeing already in our day, a movement, uh, I mean, it's very, very clear in Catholicism, they've already glorified Pope John Paul II, the, uh, they've glorified all these various popes that have just lived in a decade ago, they've made them saints on the basis of one miracle and all this. There's going to be a push uh, to call people saints who are not Orthodox saints, perhaps even by some Orthodox hierarchs. So it's very important that we understand what it means, what, who is the saint, what are the signs of sanctity, and what and, and how, how do we how does one become a recognized saint in the Orthodox Church? Something that I hope to spend some time on in the near future. Something new enters the Western Christian world, which breaks with the past and speeds up even further the process of dissolution. And we're talking, and Ferguson talks about different examples, but one of the main examples he uses is Francis of Assisi. Go ahead. Francis of Assisi, according to Father Seraphim, his life is so strange from the Orthodox point of view that we can say it is not at all like the life of an Orthodox saint. There are many different things. We could talk the whole night on this, so I'm just going to touch on a few. But he has many new things in his life, a new manner of life. And he creates, uh, calls himself a penitent of Assisi, the Lord's minstrels. He has a new manner of celebrating the, the, the celebration of the nativity, which develops this idea of the devotion to the crib and the mystery plays and everything in Italy. His very asceticism was often clothed in the guise of romance. He wooed Lady Poverty. He spoke of sister death. When once he ate during meat during a sickness, he arranged a dramatic form of repentance. He made the crowd wait for him while he forced a disciple to lead him out, his head covered with ashes, and he said, You consider me a saint, but I ate meat when I was sick, as if he is playing the role of a holy man and must appear before the people as pure which is totally opposed to orthodox, true orthodox humility. Father Seraphim sees in Francis' consideration of himself as a holy man, the sin of pride and his declaration of purity from sin, spiritual self-satisfaction, and the spirit of the Pharisee. In stark contradiction, the example of somebody like the desert ascetic, Saint Sosois uh, of, of, uh, of Egypt. Uh, yeah. So we'll stay here. Hang on a second. I'll come back to St. Sosoyas in a minute. He had something that was unique. Uh, I think it began with him, but it's been uh, multiplied many times over in the West, in Catholicism, never, ever in the Orthodox Church. Anybody know what that is? That was unique to him, began with him. We think, I think it began with him. The stigmata. The stigmata. Everybody, anybody know who, what the stigmata is? Some people know what the stigmata is, right? Uh, Padre Pio, there's a new movie out. He had this stigmata, right? For, most people believe it started with Francis. And he prayed for this. He asked God, give me the signs and let me suffer like you did on the cross. And he said, during my prayer, two great lights appeared before me. This is one of the signs of his delusion, unfortunately. One in which I recognized the creator and another in which I recognized myself. This would be un- unbelievable to hear from an Orthodox saint. Francis set forth for himself as the goal of life is quite telling. I have labored and want to labor because this brings honor, he says. Francis wishes to suffer for others and to atone for others' sins. He was, not, it was, was this not the reason for his flatly stating at the end of his life, I am not aware of any transgressions I have not redeemed through confession and repentance? And through all this all bears witness to his failure to see his sins, his fall, his utter spiritual blindness. This is from a study made uh, comparing St. Seraphim of Serov and Francis of Assisi. It's not from Father Seraphim and his writings. Father Seraphim has this to say in relation to how Francis acquired the stigmata. Uh, oh, this is where we talk about Sosoyas. Let me go back and we'll come back to what Father Seraphim has to say about the stigmata. So we have... Go ahead. Yeah, here. So we have... Um, to consider this, and so this is going to be very helpful for us to discern, right, the process of discerning the spiritual life and the 
who is a saint. Uh, let me read from here, actually. We have the Venerable Sisoyas of uh, Egypt. In the end of his life, it's written the following. In the minutes before his death, as Sisoya appeared to be talking with persons invisible to the brethren surrounding him, he responded to the request, Father, tell us with whom you are conversing, by saying, They are the angels who have come to take me, and I am imploring them to leave me here for a short time, so that I may repent. When the brethren who knew that Sisoyas was accomplished in virtues, contradicted him, saying, But you have no need of repentance, Father. He answered and said, In truth, I do not know whether I have even begun to repent. This is truly how he felt. It wasn't a put on. He wasn't putting on. He felt that he had not even begun to really go deep and return in fullness to what God had called him. So this profound understanding, this recognition of one's own imperfection, is the principal distinguishing characteristic of all true saints. And so that's why it's so shocking to read Francis of Assisi's uh, ideas about himself and what he's accomplished. This is also from the, story, uh, the uh, study by George Macris. In the West, the spiritual leaders of the time reacted to Francis' stigmatization with the greatest reverence. It, it, they accepted the phenomenon as a great miracle. Two years after his death, the Pope canonized Francis as a saint. Two years. Two years. I, I don't think that's ever been done. Uh, certainly not in the Orthodox Church. Two years would be, would be unbelievably fast. The chief motive for his canonization was the fact that the miraculous stigmata in, on his person, which were accepted as indications of his sanctity, something which had never appeared before in the history of the church. No other saint that I know of has ever had these stigmata, and yet they immediately said this is a sign of sanctity. What they should have said is, this might be a sign of delusion. Why, why have we not seen this before? Why has there not been such great saints who've worked miracles? And, and it's, you know, we have stylites. We have the great ascetics in the desert. We have... People who've risen, uh, people from the dead. I mean, where was this great sign of sanctity in the history of the church for, two th for 1,200, 300 years? They didn't ask that, ask that question. This fact is of singular interest uh, to Orthodox Christians since nothing similar has ever been encountered in the lives of the saints. Stigmatization of Francis of Assisi due to the results of his vision are ascribed to a singular prayer. The prayer is an intense pleading on his part that he may experience the sufferings of Christ in his body and soul. In the prayer, Francis desires divine instigation of the experience and thirst to experience this, not just with his soul, but with his body. Thus surrendering himself to ecstatic prayer, he did not renounce his body, but was inviting earthy and bodily sensations, physical suffering. His prayer was answered, and the Chronicle says that Francis felt himself completely transformed into Christ. Now, Francis didn't say that. They say it about him, but that's delusional. There's no question about that. It's totally delusional. The transformation, because that's not, the, the transformation of, uh, that we talked about earlier, about Christ being in us, is not an external manifestation. It's not like we, be, we suffer in the same way. We would never ask to even, it would be the, the height of arrogance to say, I want to suffer as you did, Lord. There's only one Savior of the world. There's only one crucified that physically was crucified. Nobody seeks to, to, to be as him in that external way. When we read the lives of the saints, we don't try to imitate them externally. When we read the life of St. Simeon the Stylite, we don't say, okay, I'm going to go on, the, on that pillar over there. Right? That would be absurd. The long-suffering, the humility, the patience, that's what we imitate. We don't imitate the externals. And yet he imitated and wanted the externals, even not of other saints, but of the Lord himself, which is unfortunately a profound alteration of the piety of the church. Father Seraphim says this about the stigmata of Francis of Assisi. Before receiving the stigmata, which in the Roman Catholic Church, the papal Protestants, is the real sign of a saint. And it's really come down to us now that Padre Pio must be a saint because he has the stigmata. He prayed that he might suffer what Christ has suffered in soul and body, which we just said, and that I might, as much as possible, feel all my being, that limitless love with which thou didst burn, O Son of God, and which caused thee to endure so many torments for us sinners. This is a brazenness which is unheard of in true saints. They want to have God's love itself, and they want to suffer what he suffered in the flesh. This is not spiritual striving, but a search for bodily sensations and a great pride, wishing to feel the feelings of God. All the things Francis experienced in the process of his stigmatization are the very beguilements 
the Orthodox Church Fathers repeatedly warned against. This just shows you the total ignorance of the Latins in the 12th century. They had no contact with ascetic literature. They, had, they weren't reading the lives of the Desert Fathers, perhaps St. John of Cassie. I don't know. It's hard to understand because it's so obvious in the ascetic literature that this is dangerous and delusional. Recalling how the ascetics of the Orthodox Church understand the highest spiritual prayer as detailed in the Philokalia, it is to be emphasized here that they regarded this prayer alongside their own personal strivings as a synergetic operation. In other words, man cooperating with God to achieve detachment, not only from everything physical or sensory, but even from rational thought. This is the struggle of the ascetic in the desert. That is, at best, a direct spiritual elevation of the person to God when the Lord God, the Holy Spirit himself, intercedes for the supplicant with groanings which cannot be uttered. Okay, so that's, they're saying, this is what the true ascetic is looking for. As an example, St. Isaac of Assyria, in his direction, says the following. Listen to what St. Isaac says. A soul which loves God in God and in him alone finds peace. First, release yourself from all your outward attachments, then your heart will be able to unite with God, for union with God is preceded by detachment from matter. It is plain speaking, uh, it is the plain speaking of St. Nihilus of Sinai, however, that slashes through with distinct clarity to present a serious juxtaposition to Francis's experience. In text on prayer, he admonishes, quote, never desire nor seek any face or image during prayer. Do not wish for sensory vision or angels or powers or Christ. Do not wish for these things, lest you lose your mind by mistaking the wolf for the shepherd and worship the enemies, the demons. The beginning of the beguilement, the planning, the delusion, the prelest of the mind is vain glory, which moves the mind to try and represent the deity in some form or image. So, this, this whole cultivation of imagination in the West is a, is a trap. We don't cultivate the imagination. We don't sit and meditate and remember and imagine Christ, imagine things. No. It's a big no-no in the spiritual life. We don't look for those externals. The kingdom of God is hidden. It's a spiritual kingdom within us. It animates the whole soul and body from within. It's not something that we're going to see externally. It's not come with power, as the Lord says, externally. The still small voice that enters in is what we're looking for. And then we have the disciple of Francis, Joachim of Fiori, who is very important in understanding the spirit of the age as well. Father Seraphim locates the foundation of all modern philosophies of progress, of chiliasm. Chiliasm is the idea of the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, right? He locates this and the, the new age and all that, in the concept of the coming of the third age of the Holy Spirit, that Joachim of Fiori, a disciple, and a, uh, a, himself a, a great monastic leader among the Franks and the Latins, according to Joachim's new interpretation of the meaning of the Old and New Testaments, which he received through a vision, this is a lot of what, the, what goes on in Western uh, spirituality is of, from visions and experiences and images and meditations and all this is very problematic and dangerous for the orthodox they avoid all this there are three different dispensations and three different epochs after the three persons of the holy trinity isn't that interesting there are three three economies now we have the economy of the old testament the economy of christ now we have the economy of the holy spirit this is Joachim Fiori's idea. A utopian, earthly reign and manifestation. What was Pentecost for Joachim Fiori? I thought Pentecost. And then when the, the, we just said that from, earth to heaven, from, earth, from heaven to earth, don't we <laughs> say uh, uh, throughout the week here? Unbelievable. Joachim emphasized the third age of the Holy Spirit was the last revelation. The millennium, the chiliastic expectation. He even used that phrase, the chiliastic expectation, that the church of the Spirit was coming. Okay, go to the next one. So what is this idea of the third age? This third age is obviously because with the coming of Christ, there is something new in the world. He makes all things new with his coming and consummates it with his second coming. It is obviously because the coming of Christ, I'm sorry, history is divided into two epochs, before and after Christ, preparation for Christ and the consummation. 
But once one loses the Christian understanding of Christ in Christianity, then this newness leaves one free to speculate. All right? So the holy traditions lost. We're not following the holy fathers anymore. We're ignorant of the ascetic writers. And so now we have an open field to speculate, create, imagine. And here comes Joachim of Fiori and others. And they are creating something new, the idea of a new Christianity, some new flowering of wisdom, spirituality, and actually a new revelation. And that's been superseded now with the new age, right? The new age of Aquarius, and we're putting aside the Christian age and all the rest. This again is the grand inquisitor of Dostoevsky, the making of a new Christianity better than Christianity. And of course, all this finally leads to Protestantism and all the sects we have today. It's so ironic and tragic. The Protestants think that they are far from Catholicism and the Pope. In fact, they're just children of the Pope and Catholicism. And they are directly a result of the spirit that had animated Catholicism and the Pope previous 450 years before the Reformation. The source for this is no longer Orthodox tradition. The source is either reason or visions. Reason or visions. So the lower parts of the human person that's where their sources are coming not the noose not the not the revelation but the reason or visions experience and emotions and things like this and so we see that both francis and joachim will be very influential in later times people will keep coming back to their ideas because they're in the seed period of the modern age father Seraphim goes on and talks about uh the uh fruit of this new period coming and manifesting itself in iconography and Giotto who was a painter and a, a, a scholar talks about this painting during this period as no longer an echo of tradition uh, but rose at once to the dignity of invention. Art no longer worked on a conventional models, abstract ideal. Its realities were to be realities of nature. Representation of real life was to become the object of all painting. And Father Seraphim says it's quite fitting that the new kind of saint has a new kind of icon that goes along with him, which is no longer an icon, but a religious painting. A false saint gives rise to a false iconography. We say the same thing in the political sphere during this age. And there's these trends that stand out. And one of them that he focuses on quite a bit, Father Seraphim, is this monarchy of the, the Pope using such forgeries as the donation of Constantine, the papacy, elevated its status to unheard of heights. Father Seraphim points out the climax of this point of view is in the Jubilee year of 1300, when Pope Boniface VIII seated himself on the throne of Constantine, arrayed himself with a sword, a crown, a scepter, and shouted, I am Caesar, I am emperor. And this is an indication of something extremely deep in the whole of modern thought, and that is the search for a universal monarch eventually will be the Antichrist. At the dawn of modern history, the 13th century, all the seeds of the modern mentality are present. The modern history flows logically from these seeds. Go ahead. Essentially, this mentality is the search for a new Christianity, which is better than Orthodoxy, better than the Christianity of the Holy Fathers, which Christ gave to them. By the way, in the Second Vatican Council, in my research, what was very interesting is they talked a lot about going back to the fathers. In fact, they published a number of works. Yves Congar was really influential in, in publishing a number of works of the Holy Fathers. But what I found after researching quite a bit is that they always viewed him through Aquinas. Aquinas was the interpreter by which they viewed the fathers. And it always struck me as so tragic and so, uh, so irritating <laughs> because... He wasn't following the Holy Fathers, and so they weren't, they weren't going back to the Fathers. They wanted something better. They wanted the, the Aquinas was, con, was considered the Father, the Doctor, right? The, the, the wisdom uh, in the West. And just as Father Seraphim says, they wanted something better than the Holy Fathers, and they always viewed the Fathers through Aquinas. That seemed to be, at least up until Vatican II, really dominated Catholicism. Uh, the, you know, there were schools of thought, and you couldn't be somebody who didn't follow the, the, the doctor for the longest time in Catholicism. So it's something better. Later on, this will take forms that go through atheism and all kinds of belief, but essentially the search remains the same. 
And in the end, the world will be Christian, though it is the Antichrist who will give them a new religion. So Christianity is not going to disappear in the age of Antichrist. There will be lots of Christianity. But unfortunately, many of the Christians will follow after the Antichrist because they have lost the savor. They've lost the, the, the ethos and the experience of Christianity. So when not, this, this, this uh, new religion of the Antichrist, and I think, I think Father Saber doesn't say this, but I think the new religion will be perennialism. Perennialism will, will be essentially what people will embrace. They're already embracing it all over the world. Even Orthodox hierarchs are embracing it. And this perennialism is the idea that, like we said earlier, people like Fritjof Schuon or René Guénon and others who say that the religions are all salvific and they all lead up the mountain and they all are essentially an esoteric uh, unity among all the religions. Exo exoteric, externally they're all different and you can't unite them and there should, there should be no syncretism. But they're all united essentially in experience of the same God. I think that will be the formula which will be adopted by many in the, in the Christian society and they will follow after and accept all the religions on that basis. And he says it will not be something foreign to Christianity. It's very interesting. It will be something everyone will accept as Christianity. It will be, uh, but it will be for and of the Antichrist. And that is why the main history of the rebellion against Christ, not less than the apostasy that St. Paul talks about, is not by means of persecution, as it was in the beginning, but by means of taking Christianity and changing it, a, a distortion of Christianity, that's the means by which the Antichrist will rise in the days ahead. And so that it will no longer be Christian in truth, although it will have the form, right? The, doesn't the Apostle Paul say that they have the form of godliness, but they don't have God? That will be maintained in the end times. That is what St. Paul calls the unfolding of the mystery of iniquity in preparation for the Antichrist. So, Father Seraphim goes on, and we're just going to summarize the rest very quickly. He goes on, and he, uh, in this whole um, extensive, very long uh, survival course, he goes through all of the rest of the history of the West, all the way up until the days uh, of our, uh, his days in the, in the 70s, and talks about the rise of Antichrist. Uh, in ensuing lectures, Father Seraphim will go on to cover the Renaissance, the Protestant Reformation, the discovery of the world, uh, the, uh, of the West, uh, the explosion of science, the religious movements, Chiliasm in the 15th, 16th centuries, religious art, the Enlightenment uh, and its effect on Western Christianity, the French Revolution and its cause and effects, the Chiliast movements of the 19th and 20th century, the revolutionary age, the new religion, evolution, and many other topics. It really is just unbelievable, the scope and the depth and the analysis that Father Seraphim gave us. One of the constant themes of Father Seraphim's lectures and, the West, and of the Western world for the last 500 or more years is the rise of Chiliasm. And that's the utopia, right? The movements of the utopian movements. What is this new movement called transhumanism or uh, um, uh, what's the other? Posthumanism, right? This whole uh, movement that's coming out with people like um, the founder of the head of Google or uh, the head of Twitter, uh, Musk, and all these people who are talking about we're going to reach singularity by 2045 and we're going to have, uh, we're going to do away with sickness and death and all the rest. And what is all that? That's the same chiliastic utopian dream that was inspired, uh, that inspired men to apostatize from the very beginning with Adam and Eve or the Tower of Babel. Uh, and all of, the, of, of this world, in this world there will be salvation. In, this is everything there is, right? And we have to find it here, and we have to bring paradise here. And in fact, what they're talking about in transhumanism is hell. They want to keep us alive in this fallen world and in this sinful uh, and, and death-ridden world forever. That's called hell. It's not called paradise. This is the opposite of what the Lord is promising us and giving us in the church. Uh, this, these utopias, Father Seraphim analyzes very extensively, and very, it's very important what he has to say. So, the address in the Enlightenment, when Chiliastic expectations became divorced from the belief in God and the idea of theocracy became replaced by socialism, Father Seraphim spoke at length about the 18th century Chilias, the utopian socialist prophets. When addressing the 19th century, when the Chiliastic expectations were seen in communism and national socialism, Father Seraphim noted that even though Marx and Engels' communism called itself scientific, it was quite utopian. So scientism... Is, is actually a part of the whole utopian 
move and, and far from, uh, you know, the benign, you know, uh, love of, of truth that many people uh, ascribe to uh, the, the scientists in many, in, in many cases. Since the revolutionary age is, is the one in which we now live, Father Seraphim devoted considerably more time to it than he did to the previous epics. He showed how the roots of the French Revolution are found in the philosophy of Voltaire and Rousseau and in the influence of Freemasonry and the Illuminati. And one of the reasons why his book will be very explosive when it's finally published and perhaps why it's difficult for them to publish, I don't know. Elsewhere, he spoke of the conservative reaction to the destruction of the old order in the West by Joseph de Maistre, Donodo Cortez, and others, in Russia by Nicholas I, Alexander III, Konstantin Podolonestov, and Fyodor Dostoevsky. In another talk, he addressed the revolutionary philosophers Mikhail Bakunin and Pierre-Joseph Prodhun, and 20th century revolutionary movements. In the final series of lectures, Father Seraphim spoke at length about the new religion, he addressed the philosophies which arose out of the new subjectivism after the dead end of the Enlightenment, as well as uh, on the modern religious philosophy of, of evolution. Finally, he pointed to other symptoms of nihilism and chiliasm, the decline of humanism to subhumanism in art and architecture, the rise of spiritualistic phenomenon, and the chiliastic prophecies of Teilhard de Chardin, Nicholas Fyodorov, Nicholas Berdyaev, and Henry Miller, to name a few. That is the extensive and amazing survival course of Father Seraphim Rose. I hope you all read it. If you haven't read it, go back and read it again. It's worth your time. Thank you very much for your attention. Oh,